You're listening to the Afternoon Asks ND Squad, ND for Neurodivergent, with Sarah, Jay and Fran. Jay is Canadian, bringing up her ND family in Australia and is late diagnosed autistic. Fran hails from Germany and is ADHD autistic. Sarah is British Chinese and part of a mixed NT ND family. Standing up for representation, breaking down stereotypes and challenging ableist perceptions, we're here to discuss all kinds of neurodivergencies in Asian dramas with a dose of scientific research and our own lived experience sprinkled on top. Hope you enjoy! Hi everyone! Hi everyone! Hi, so today we have uh, Sarah, Francisca and Jay here. We're back with another episode on autistic and autistic coded characters in K-drama. And today we're going to actually talk about probably most of us our first and most favourite character, but certainly on the pod before Extraordinary Tony Wu, Moon Sante from It's Okay to Not Be Okay was really one of the prime examples of autism in K-drama done extremely well. So we will get to that, but first I thought we'd start with a bit of pre-show banter, the way the Nunas do. And we've actually got quite a great story because you two are (laughs) meeting up soon, right? So do you want to tell us how that happened? Jay, do you want to start off with telling us about what June was going to hold for you originally? I managed to buy two tickets to see Augusty in Singapore and this is like because you know he's not coming to Australia so sadly sadly or Europe or Europe that's right or Europe (laughs) and not part of the world (laughs) (laughs) ah I feel for everyone in Europe too so this is really big for me because I've never been fortunate enough to see BTS live ever I've seen like loads of their streamed concerts like I think basically every streamed concert I've seen but I've never seen them live and so this will be the first opportunity I have to see at least one of the members performing live and so this is like a really big deal and I've never been to Singapore and for those of you who don't know Jay is army so she's at our- <laughs> every podcast needs an army person. it does absolutely <laughs> so yeah I've just been so excited about it the day I got the tickets I felt like I won the lottery because like yeah that was a whole other story but just you know when you when the queue forms and you discover your place in the queue and you know all my friends were going for tickets at the same time we had this little group of Australian army who were all trying for tickets in Singapore yeah there was like maybe maybe six or seven of us that were all trying and they kept saying you know like if you get into the the 20,000s or 25,000s like that's that's a good spot to be in the queue like that's that's good yeah yeah and so I right it the queue it just it opened it started and then all of a sudden I looked down and it says my place in the queue is 6,000 and I'm like whoa like And that's all I'm like, you know, texting them all like mad saying like, is that good? Is that good? And it has like, you know, time until you, you know, get to the, the ticket screen for me was like, inst- it was like 10 yeah. minutes instantly. And then it just drops suddenly right oh, after. Wow. So basically within about five minutes or so, I was able to purchase the tickets. Oh my wow. gosh. I know it was amazing. So and so like, yeah, it was, it was just unbelievable. And I'm still like, I'm just still floating on air. I'm still so excited. That's about like we're leaving about a week and a half's time. And um oh, yeah, God, so. don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, I bought these tickets and made these plans to go up to Singapore. And I started talking to Francisca about it and saying, like, you know, like, oh, like I'm going up to Singapore and and it's gonna be so exciting. And I get to get to see Yungi and all this. And then she 
just kind of casually searched prices for an airline ticket from where she is to Singapore. And she's like, huh, it's less expensive than I thought. <laughs> and so all of a sudden there was like these wheels turning of like, hmm, like, you know, like, and she's like, maybe I, we could meet up while you're there. Cause you know, she said, I've never been to Singapore and we'll just meet up while you're there and kind of hang for a few days. And I was like, yes, yes. Like, you know, <laughs> this would be so awesome. Like, just do it. So then the problem is, right. You need to get tickets, yes. right. To this sold out concert. Well, I mean, I, I mean, we talked about this, right. I, I was at work when, when we had this conversation <laughs> and when I looked at flight prices and things like that. And the thing was originally, I hadn't even considered Asia. Like I'm baby, baby army. I'm very new to this, but like August D's album is just incredible. And like seeing the footage on social media and things like that. And I'm so glad that ARMY and, you know, are sharing this and that we even get to see all this stuff. Yeah. But yeah. it literally made my heart ache that he wasn't coming to Europe, you know, that I wasn't going to be able to see this live because it's just such an incredible album. I actually looked up tickets for the US and I was like, oh my God, this is impossible. It takes so long to get there from Europe. You know, it's so expensive. And yeah. I didn't even consider Asia yeah. because I thought it was further away. Yeah, I don't know what made me look up tickets to Singapore, but I was like, this is affordable. I could do this. <laughs> and then we talked about it and we were like, OK, I'm just going to go into this with the mindset. I'm just going to see Jay. Yes. This is just going to be a trip to Singapore because it's sold out. Yeah. and It's still going to be amazing. There's three concerts in Singapore. So the place will just be brimming with fans and I'll still get all the things around basically. Yeah. And I mean, we live so far apart with Europe and Australia. Yeah. This might be in the near future, the only chance we actually do get to meet. So I was super, super, super excited at the idea to just going to Singapore and meeting up. And this was the mindset I, I had. So when I booked the tickets... I had to move some work stuff around first, which was um, very stressful, waiting time. But when I had booked the flight tickets, I posted on my social media that I was going and that I was looking for tickets. And I hadn't even properly researched how to legitimately buy tickets off people without getting scammed. Yeah. And I was just like, oh God, is there even a way? And how do you tell? And it's such a risk and you spend so much money. And yeah, yeah. I hadn't even looked into it or prepared for it. And I went to bed on Friday evening and I woke up on Saturday morning and I had this message in my inbox that said, I've got two tickets. Do you want them? <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like oh my god oh my god oh my god I don't know what to do what's the next step what's happening and I was just completely overwhelmed with even this like opportunity and I was like who is this person even and I scrolled back and it turned out it's a Ji Chang-uk fan who I talked to more than a year ago she went to a fan meet and she found my original tumblr post about suspicious partner and ji chang-uk oh i love this it's like all ties together <laughs> <laughs> i know it's such an amazing so she found that article 
and she loved it and she is part of a blog and she blogged about her fan meet experience and she linked my article in the comments there and she works with autistic people on like a voluntary basis and so she was following me because of that basically but we hadn't been in contact for a whole year and then she just comes up and she's like yeah I wanted to put them up for sale this weekend so you kind of messaged at the right time yeah I've got these tickets what's your email and I told her my email and she sent me the tickets and I was like whoa we haven't even talked about prices and she's like yeah no it's fine you can have them for free and I was just like what (laughs) who who does this who are you are you legit and then I literally spent the whole morning of Saturday I went shopping I don't even know what I bought but I had (laughs) but I had like three conversations going with three different people and all went the same. Is this a scam? Could this be a scam? What could she get out of this? Why is she doing this? Who gives away free tickets? Like those tickets are expensive. Why mm. would she do this? So yes, it's been a couple of weeks now. So, um, and we've talked more and it all seems legit. So I'm getting so incredibly excited that I actually oh. am this lucky and that I actually get to see this concert. Mm. And oh. yeah. See, the stars are aligning for you. This is so cool. I know. Uh, so those of you who've listened to Afternoon Delight will know that, you know, obviously Augusty brought together lots of the Afternoon Armies as well out in Oakland and in other places, I'm, I, I'm sure. But I just love also that our pod has kind of brought you two together. So, and also just to let you know, guys, like they did invite me. There was another ticket, obviously. <laughs> they did say, hey, Sarah. Exactly. <laughs> and honestly, for a, yeah, for a good few hot seconds, I was like, oh, my God. Maybe I could do this. Um, <laughs> I've got air miles. But actually, um, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things that definitely, if I didn't have children, because actually if it was just me and my husband, you'd have been like, just go for it. Like, just go yeah. for it. It's an amazing opportunity. And I love Singapore. I used to, I, I've lived there in the past. So, um, yeah, but I can't kind of leave him yeah. with the kids again because I've been traveling a lot uh, <laughs> work, and I will be doing more travel again like later this year so mm. I said no but I was there was a part of me for a hot split <laughs> second I was like um so yeah but thank you for inviting me um but but I will enjoy the whole experience vicariously through you guys and I'm so so excited for you both oh thank you yeah I mean no one in real life in my real life understands any of this (laughs) (laughs) so I'm very glad to be you know like telling you guys about it and telling the whole (laughs) world through the pod about this story because no one in my real life understands and they're all just like who's bts what are you doing? Yeah. Well, you're flying <laughs> to where? To do what? Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool. And this is your first time to Asia, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, really exciting. Oh. Well, I am very excited. And I'm sure next time we pod again, we're going to hear all about you two having your in real life meetup, which would be so exciting. And obviously the whole Augusty experience out in Singapore. Have the best time, guys. Yay. I mean, it is fitting talking about this because Augusty talks so much about mental health topics and he's raising so much awareness and he's so open about it. And today's uh, subject is all about a drama that's about mental health issues and raising awareness and stuff like that. There you go. Look, isn't Francis turning into an expert podcaster? What a segue. Because yes, after two episodes on autistic coded characters, we're actually going to be talking about someone who has written 
autistic and we all think he was written really extremely well as Moon Sang Tae and, and obviously although the actor that portrayed him Oh Jong Se is neurotypical he did such an excellent job with this role and deservedly got uh, the Bexon Award the second in a row actually that he got for best actor and this for us is the process probably the closest there is to a, a best practice example if there is such a thing so we're all super excited to be talking to you about today's topic because it feels like as we've said Moon Sante is a classic when it comes to autistic characters in K-drama we all love the drama and in fact for me It's Okay to Not Be Okay is still a top 10 drama and has been since I first watched it way back in what feels like really early days of my K-drama journey yeah I agree it's for me too for you too yeah in fact I wrecked it last night because um somebody was we were talking about fandoms I was randomly I was out out right I went to a party last night and um and I was talking about my fandom my Korean drama fandom so another colleague of mine sat next to me and said well why don't you recommend me a first drama to watch and I rarely recommend it's okay to not be okay it's a first K drama to watch but I often ask like what is your what's your thing like what dramas do you love and she's just like I love beautiful dramas with a lot of emotions and some sadness and she raised Mad Men which I don't know if you've watched uh, and I don't think it's okay to not be okay is a comp for Mad Men specifically but it is an incredibly beautiful drama obviously all those gothic scenes are shot so beautifully well so uh, fingers crossed anyway I'll let you know whether or not she comes to watch it but <laughs> as Francisca said it covers many topics around mental health which especially I think in kind of traditionally conservative societies like Korea and other East Asian countries, but also to an extent to Western countries, there's a lot of prejudice and stigma around mental health. And it's certainly not seen in the same way as physical illness. And the drama talks a lot about and goes into all of this. In fact, as a reminder, the first, the actual Korean title, as it's been translated into a different way, was Psycho but it's okay. So even the Korean drama title itself is kind of like for Western ears, it's a bit like, mm, mm. okay, bit problematic. So yeah, obviously it, it, got, it got translated to it's okay to not be okay instead, which is obviously a, a bit more of a gentler way to work in the mental health aspects of this. So if you haven't seen this drama, we do really recommend it. The Afternooners have covered this drama in a really wonderful podcast. So do check it out because they also loved it. Their deep dive is focused more on the drama as a whole and they cover it, it really well. Whilst today we're going to be doing more of an in-depth discussion on the autism aspect specifically. So for this podcast today, as always, we won't be giving away any major pop spoilers for this. But perhaps on this podcast more than others so far, it will make a lot more sense to you if you've seen the drama and know the plot points we're talking about. So just to warn you, if you haven't seen this drama, we recommend you just uh, stop listening to us now and go watch it because it's brilliant. Turns out it wasn't quite possible to keep this podcast as spoiler-free as we originally planned. You can listen to the first part on autistic traits in the character Moon Sang Tae without any major plot spoilers. However, as soon as we start to talk about the relationships between the characters, we had to reveal quite a lot about the character developments of the main characters, which should be considered a plot spoiler in their own right. Consider yourself warned. I would also like to take this chance to issue a trigger warning. We put specific trigger warnings for PTSD 
and physical violence in the show notes. But this is a podcast about a diverse set of mental health issues and autism and neurodivergency. So consider this a general trigger warning for these kinds of topics and tread carefully. But even if, whether you have watched or haven't watched, we really hope you find that the topic is interesting. Just to reiterate, I'm the neurotypical one on this podcast, so I'm going to be doing most of the questions, as I really want to make sure that we hear from the autistic voices on this pod. So there's a lot of me in this intro. So if you're already sick of me, don't worry, I, I will stop talking soon. And the rest of the podcast <laughs> will mainly be Jay and Francie. First off, though, let's just introduce the drama to set the scene. It's OK to Not Be OK is a 2020k drama written by Zhou Yong and directed by Park shin It starts Kim Soo-hun, so ji and Oh Jong-sei as the leads. It's mainly set at a psychiatric hospital where the story centres around the three main characters. It also features the stories of different patients. Moon Gang-tae lives with his older brother Moon Sang-tae who is autistic. Circumstances lead Gang-tae to work at the OK psychiatric hospital in the fictional Songjin city, the city where they all lived when they were young. We get hints at some trauma in their past that might be triggered by this move, but the brothers decide they don't have much of a choice. Before they move, Gantel meets a famous children's book writer, Go Moon Yong, who is rumoured to have antisocial personality disorder. Sangte is a huge fan of her books, and the three get thrown together over Sangte wanting to meet her. Moon Yong forms a romantic obsession for Gantel after finding out that their past overlap. She follows him to their hometown, where the lives of the trio get entangled because they're triggered and drawn to each other in equal measure and slowly begin to heal each other's emotional wounds. They unravel many secrets, seek comfort from each other and move forward in their lives. So that's the drama. Let's deep dive Sante. He's written as autistic, but what resonated for you guys? What were the things that you noticed about him? I think this is like one of those, where do you start? There's literally so much. I don't even, I can't even tell, say anymore if... I knew before I started the drama that he was autistic or if this was just like an instant, okay, this is so clear. There's not even a question about it. But I think one of the first scenes we get is this school or workplace where he works at. And it's like they work with lots of machines and everything's loud. And we've got one of those brilliant scenes where the drama really shows well how he's just overwhelmed with all the sensory things that are happening around him. He's holding his ears and everything's happening. There's flashy images and there's so much noise and there is different layers of noise being cut together and everything's happening. And you just know immediately, okay, that this is what sensory overload could look like if put in a drama like this. It's really well visualized. Yeah, it was just like, to me, it was really 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 super clear that he was autistic from like the first scene we get in the drama i think for me physical movements so he's kind of got this kind of jerky way of his moving his arms and walking that i think is often coded as like this is person is is autistic uh and also the styling of his outfits especially you know the leads just look so <laughs> So amazingly beautiful. And obviously, Go Mung Young wears the most incredible wardrobe in this drama, and he is very much kind of styled autistic, but I think looks a bit stereotypical. But why is that? Uh, well, that's me. That's what we can cover that later when we talk about things we didn't like so much about this drama and uh, drama's portrayal. But yes, yeah. But that's for me, like originally, even before you see any scenes, it was like, oh, right, okay, he is, he's not the same as the others. 
Yes. Which is a shame, but yes. Uh, I tried to look for some of the ones that weren't like really, really apparent, like right in the first episode. And um, so I got like the intense emotions his need for organization and routine. I loved how he organized his book collections. He had them all organized by author's name on the shelves. Yeah. And he had like everything labeled. And so everything had a place, you know, like, yeah, his need for routine and, and scheduling and everything that went along with that. Which is just even more incredible that he's so, you know, that everything's labeled and organized like this, considering that they move every single year. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought. Pack it all up and then redo yeah. it. And I mean, his yeah. the, the whole flat will had like labels everywhere, right? This is your toothbrush. This is the bowl you use for washing your hair and things like that. So there were like so many clues to like help him in his daily routine, which was like another thing of the drama. But it's just like occurred to me to have to move every single year and to redo this and to pack all this. Oh, my God. What, what like an effort. Hmm. And it's not just the pra- it's not just the practical thing of moving, right? It's the it's environment and the context switching, and it's just like I think moving for a lot of autistic people is is really traumatic in a way that is not just practical. You know, it's it's just that sense of belonging, and familiarity, and you know, it's like sometimes I say to my husband, I can't ever imagine moving from our house because I just don't think I could handle the the change. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and the change for my family, that is not like, <laughs> like change specifically for me. Although for me, I also find it the most stressful thing ever, I think. Yeah. And I don't know if this is kind of a, not mistake the drama makes, but like an inconsistency with his character maybe, or if it just shows how big his trauma mm. and his PTSD was with the butterflies, that this the butterflies and the like everything that got triggered by them was just such a huge thing for him that he even considered moving all his stuff and upsetting all his routine and like upsetting his whole life and everything just to get away that was even more traumatic than the national moving every year yeah yeah, good point. I just wanted to do, I just wanted to say one more that was a favorite of mine, and that was the repeated watching of his favorite shows. It just resonates so much, and both for me and then like in raising my daughter, it's just having like a, a comfort show, having like a really predictable show that you've watched, you know, hundreds of times, but that you always put on when you you need something to like help emotionally regulate or just to you know calm yourself or just to feel at home or just whatever and that you've got like your comfort show on and you know all the lines to it because you've got them all memorized and yeah like that I love those scenes where he's watching his show yeah I have that too that really resonated with me too yeah 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 people in my (laughs) those people in my family who are neurodiverse are also similar so um, so could you tell us a little bit more about that? So for those of us who are not who are not uh, uh, neurodiverse, like where does the comfort come from? Because I think for me, when I watch those scenes, and this was like, again, like both early in my K-drama journey and also early in my understanding about autism journey, um, to me, watch, re-watch, like I don't re-watch those very often. I'm just not much of a massive re-watcher. And part of it is that I just want to watch something new. Like the thought of like watching something where I already know all the lines, I already know what's all happened. It's just kind of, so I remember when he was watching his 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 cartoon, his, I think it's Dooley, and he can say all the lines ahead of time, like he knows them all. I just remember thinking like, but isn't that boring? Like, isn't that like, why would you just, why wouldn't you go like find something new about dinosaurs to watch? Um, so what is it specifically about re-watching something you already know so well that you could literally read it off, you know, it is emotionally kind of 
a lack of regulation thing for you guys? I think comfort is the the key word here. Watching something new is always to a certain amount stressful because you don't know what happens. There's always this basic level of stress that's there that you don't know is this going to end well is this going to end you know or what's you know at what situations it's not even just about I like sad endings you know I'm not opposed to you know the leads not ending up together in the end or something like that or someone dying or something but just the unknown of it is like a huge stress factor and when I rewatch things, I don't like to rewatch everything, but I do love to rewatch things. But it only works with shows that are well written, that have complex characters, that have different levels. One of the things I love about this drama and I loved about Suspicious Partner, for instance, or Healer, is that every time you watch these shows, you can kind of like, you know, the story, you know, kind of like the top layer but you can notice so many more things. You can really like focus the second time around on all the facial expressions. And it's not just about not having to read so many of the subtitles anymore, but you know, you're kind of like preoccupied on the first watch with just like the general story and just like with wondering what happens next that you can't even appreciate when a show is well done, all the different layers and all the details in it and all the, you know, stuff that's going on. So it's kind of just for me, it takes away the stress of worrying about what happens because I know that and I can appreciate the acting. I can appreciate all the emotions. I can kind of, you know, it's like those sort of things. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) And I was just going to add to that. um, It's just it's a matter of feeling safe, right? Like it's just a matter of, of comfort and safety and Francisca said it's predictable like we know how it ends we know how it goes and it's that stability it's like especially if life around you is unpredictable and you've had a rough day or a rough week and and you don't know what's happening next and things seem chaotic you can go back to the show where it's safe it's predictable it resonates with you you felt good watching it and you've got all these emotions tied up with like feeling happy and loving it and stuff and it's and it's just it's yeah it's so meaningful it's just yeah. meaningful. And it's, it's basically, it is, it's basically just comfort and safety. And so, I mean, mm. that's why, you know, we could watch it over and over and over again. And I'd even say that like, um, it's almost like it's not unchanging because we take different things from it, depending on where we are that day. It's as much as Francisco was also saying that, you know, like with subsequent rewatches, like first, second, third, you get the different layers, but also what we're bringing to it in our emotional state or our mental state from that day we might be able to glean different details or, or just get something different from the show, just depending on how we're feeling and how we're thinking, like it'll, it'll be different for us almost every time. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's something too. Yeah. That's great. Thanks guys. That's that, that really helped me. Yeah. Understand better. Actually, that makes a lot of sense to me. And actually, and I think the, Yeah, and I think the emotional regulation is like very important here too. I think we've talked about this like in previous podcasts, how important it is to do things to kind of like regulate your emotions, be it stimming or something else. And like recently I've like had like personally like some upset in my love life and things like that. So to kind of like, I don't know, on a very upsetting day, I just put on touch your heart because I know 
you know the story and now it's just like this wonderful story of two people falling in love and there is a bit of upset in there but it's like minor and it's just so many happy scenes that it really allows me to feel more calm and happy about you know my, myself in my real life it kind of like has an influence on my emotions that day and that's why it's such a comfort drama at the moment yeah I love that show too I was actually while you're talking about stimming I thinking I was thinking that um because Echolalia, which I think we've talked about way back in the Extraordinary Attorney Wu uh, podcast, which is uh, repeating words that the other person uh, has already said, is a kind of verbal stim, right? So it's a kind of, uh, uh, often um, autistic people do it. Um, and he he obviously not only does Echolalia, but he he says all the lines in, in Dooley as they're going along, because for him it's a, it is a verbal stim verbal stim and I think that's one of the beauties of this drama I think we talked previously in the autistic coded uh, dramas that they often don't show the downsides and the need to emotionally regulate and the need to seek comfort and this show has always been really good at showing you know some really great things about um his journey but also like how he how he copes with being uh neurodiverse in a neurotypical society mm. I also really like that this wasn't just like a one-off thing. Yes. So they didn't just have like a list. Okay, we need to like show him doing this. We need to show him this, doing this. It's like something that occurs throughout the drama. We see those scenes where he's watching those shows and where he's repeating lines and where he does echolalia and other stims. We see that not just in episode one and two, we see that all the way through to the last episode. So it's like really consistent with his character and they didn't just want to like tick a box, but actually, you know, the writing and acting was so good that that was included the whole time around. Although maybe, you know, it wasn't, it didn't further the plot or anything like that to show this. Another thing that I liked was how he had obvious sensory issues and was often found curled up in a safe space when he was overwhelmed. And obviously the scene in the bookstore, for example, for me, was just so true to life. Like I could really imagine for an autistic person how exciting to the point of overwhelm it might have been to meet someone there a fan. I mean, you guys are going to be like this with Augustine probably. <laughs> you're going to finally, <laughs> you're going to finally, finally go to this fan show um, and you're just going to be like, emotions are really heightened. Anyway, so this alone can be obviously quite a difficult scenario with lots and lots of these heightened emotions. And then he's into a crowd, which is also often difficult. Um, and he hates being touched by strangers. Um I hate being touched by strangers. So I actually really feel like I feel him, like I know, like my skin crawls when someone touches me that I don't know. Um, so for me, it's no wonder after everything that happens and everyone's looking at him that he has to run off uh, and, and find the smallest space to crawl into to feel safe. Um, and I I always feel like, even obviously like I'm, I'm not neurodiverse, that I really, really get how he felt. Because I think sometimes there are times, you know, we in society as a whole, should allow ourselves chances to just go crawl in a corner and find a safe space and just shut out the world for a bit, just for our own mental health. I think that would actually help all of us. But obviously we all mask and like kind of like man up and pretend that we don't need these uh, tiny safe spaces just to, for a moment to kind of get over ourselves. So in a way I love, I really love that this drama shows that um, and doesn't show it in a negative way. This is just his way of, of kind of regaining his, his sense of self. I just had this picture in my head when you said that we're going to be like that when we're at the concert. <laughs> at the, you know, I mean, this. I just had this scene 
of him in his flat wearing these like weirdly colored jumpers and like very old schooly kind of 90s type or even older clothes and then he's got this funky closet thing right this fabric closet that he always like goes into and then yes. he zips it up all the top yeah just a like now copy and paste this scene into the XT concert <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you need to travel with a portable wardrobe. <laughs> Absolutely. I wish there were more spaces like this as well. And I just wanted to add a couple of other subtle, subtler things that I observed. Um, his sense of humor, his strong visual memory, which is really a double-edged sword if we're talking about trauma. Um, and his memory for entire conversations word for word, um, like from the Jampung restaurant when they were kids um his empathy his perceptiveness and um an example of that is that scene on the bus when he's describing Kante as whimpering like a dog in his sleep and Kante tries to brush it off but Sante observes you know that the reason you're doing it is because your heart is aching and so I mean he's he's very perceptive and empathetic and you know he he sees a lot around him and like perceives and understand a lot like of what's going on. So. Yeah. And one thing that we haven't actually talked about, that's like very, very important for the story too, or features very centrally is his, that he's got, that he struggles with uh, the facial expressions and things mm. like that. So he's got pictures on the wall that show the facial expressions and name them. So he struggles with alexithemia, which we uh, discussed in the last podcast too, mm -hmm. which is this, uh, this this struggle to kind of like put a word to facial expressions and recognize feelings and things like that. Exactly. And it's tricky for him seeing as he um, is working really hard to be a professional illustrator. And part of that task is having to draw characters with facial expressions. And so, I mean, it's very tricky then to try and incorporate that into his art when he's having trouble perceiving and what they are. This is the K-Job that always gets mentioned for having a well-written and well-portrayed uh, character. So what specifically about his character character arc do we already love? I think the main thing for me was that he's actually a main character, much like uh, Extraordinary Tony Wu, but obviously that's a recent drama. So up until then, he was like one of the few autistic characters that was actually a lead character with a story arc that wasn't just a plot device, that wasn't just there to kind of make, I don't know, to, to add to another lead character's story and to make them seem more something, I don't know, more charitable or more troubled or something like that to have a disabled uh, sibling or something like that. He was a person in his own right. And yeah, I just really, really liked that about the show. Yeah, absolutely. I think I uh, agree with you that he was a character in his own uh, right. He had a character arc he wasn't as the Nunas call it a plot moppet he's not there to provide conflict he's not a way to move the plot on or be you know the token autistic character um and he is actually still for me 
the most fully fledged autistic character in K-drama, even more than um, uh, Attorney Wu. Um, and obviously you, those of you who might tuned in have heard our reservations on, on some of the autistic portrayal for extraordinary Attorney Wu. Um, so I love that we have this such a fully fledged character for him. Yeah, and I don't even mind, like, I mean, he's in a, in a way, we've talked a lot about autistic coded characters and in the other pods and characters that aren't so stereotypical because we wanted to add to like kind of like the diversity of what autism is like but I don't mind that he is quite in in so many ways a very very stereotypical character in you know him being a what uh, a male character and having kind of like this typical special interest of dinosaurs and you know being really really good at drawing and things like that but he was just so well done in all the other ways that him being so stereotypical didn't bother me at all i think what really worked as well was that um he's like this also this wider meta of how autistic people are perceived and their role in society and what's working and what's not and so um if you look at some of the the scenes and some of the situations that took place in the drama, you have the reaction of the parents at the book signing who unfortunately called him a lunatic when he approached their child because um, he was fascinated with the dinosaur costume. And there's the scene in episode four where the brothers are walking home after a school day um, for Sangte, where he says they learned to make jam and that day and he, that he was bored to death with it. And um, it reminded me um, a little bit of Naoki Higashira's description in his book, um, Fall Down Seven Times, Get Up Eight. Um, and if no one is familiar with him, he is a non-speaking autistic writer with high support needs um, from Japan. And I'm referred to him a couple more times in this pod just because I find his insight really helpful. And so he wrote about special schools um, for people with disabilities in Japan, where there's this gap in what outsiders can thought should be on the curriculum and what teachers could realistically accomplish each day versus the capability of the students and the students own goals and agency for a meaningful life and so I mean you know the old kind of standby of presumed competence right and so just that scene with the jam just reminded me of it that there's someone who's like really gifted as an artist and you know he's making jam and saying like he's just bored to tears making jam and so, um, yeah, um, that was something that resonated with me as well. But there's definitely a lot to unpack from this drama and from the way that, you know, the, he's written and kind of just the wider implications of autism in society. Right. I haven't yeah, even I noticed that. So I love that you raised this. Yeah, and I, I think the, the drama is full of these things where we kind of get different perspectives on him as an autistic person both from the outside and from the inside, from people who don't know him, from people who know him. And it just shows the variety of reactions and perceptions and uh, from strangers, the prejudice and how they make assumptions. But even from his brother, sometimes we get this these scenes where Sangte says things and his brother is just like, oh my God, this was really insightful. I didn't... I didn't expect this because Sangte always seems to just be in his own world and to be preoccupied with himself. And because he doesn't make eye contact, you that that's kind of like always assumed when someone's not 
doing eye contact, right? They don't listen and they don't actually notice what's going on. And we had kind of the, this these moments in the drama where we were like, oh, this was an assumption that his brother made that isn't actually true. And I loved seeing all these different kind of like views and all these different perspectives in this drama. We kind of mentioned uh, these these situations before where Sangte has a meltdown or where he needs to cope with uh, being overwhelmed and I think that was like one of the high points of this drama for me how they showed their routine and that they had this routine as brothers I mean there's like lots that's wrong in their relationship but I just you know they've spent their whole lives together they have figured out what Sangte needs in these situations and they showed this so well in this drama that Kangte just knows what to do and he knows to give him space and he knows that he needs to kind of wait for Sangte to be ready and to come out and there's the scene right the, the bookstore scene basically afterwards where Kunyong um joins Kangte outside of that room where Sangte is kind of like, you know, taking his moment and taking his space. And she's like, well, shouldn't we like go in and check on him? And Kangte is like, no, 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 he'll come out when he's ready. Unless he comes out, then we know he's not ready. So we don't need to check on him. Like this is, you know, and she obviously doesn't know because she doesn't know him. And I just thought that those scenes were done really beautifully because he listens to his brother. He respects his need for space, his need to calm down. He respects that knows himself best, which obviously often people dealing with other, with people with disabilities or something is not a given, right? People make assumptions about you. They think they know what's best. Yeah. They kind of put their own thoughts on you and tell you how to do things and there's another scene where the mother of um uh oh, i've forgotten what her name is but the, the people they live with she kind of like tries to get sangte out of this space in the kitchen yes. and she takes away his bag and tries to kind of like physically pull him out and get him out of this space before he's ready and it doesn't work at all and she just doesn't know how to deal with it and she thinks the best thing for him is to not be curled up in that space completely disregarding that he's in that space for a reason and I think the drama showed this really well to kind of like respect the autistic person's knowledge about themselves and about what they need in that moment. Yeah, really great points. Okay, so what struck you about the relationship Sangte had with the people around him, uh, like with his brother, with Gomong Yong, and with the others in his life? Uh, there's a lot to, to talk about with regards to the relationships. Um, one thing I really liked about the drama was that despite the prejudice that can exist in Korean society and some other societies from being autistic and having autistic family members the relationships in the drama were one of my favorite parts and that everyone from their landlady to her daughter to Gangte's best friend like Jo Jishu they all treated Sangte with respect and kindness and love and acceptance and like even the publisher and the assistant interacted with him respectfully and like no one was belittling him or mocking him or denying his dignity as a human being and there was also generally a respect for his agency as well. Yeah, I agree with that. It's one of the 
strengths of this drama and I, I mean there were differences and nuances like like I just said with the the mother like she kind of does seem to treat him in a careful way sometimes but still with respect but it's just down to the knowledge that she hasn't known him for long enough that she doesn't know kind of like uh, what, what to do in certain situations but yeah generally I totally agree with that point. Mm-hmm. And then when you have Common Young, there's this interesting dynamic going on where she's telling Kangte that he needs to stop playing hostage, in her words, and to ease back on his caretaking of his brother. But at the same time, she's trying to step into that role of being taken care of herself since she's never had it. And Sangte's admonishing her that she needs to act more grown up and act more responsible. Um, for example, like the scene at the breakfast table where he's kind of reprimanding her and scolding her that she should feed herself. Um, And so he doesn't fawn over her or placate her the way that others do. And I think this is part of her emotional growth um, that we see in her character arc. Mm, And I, I love that about the drama because this is like one of the main things that he doesn't get that much from her character, actually. I mean, yes, she employs him and he can illustrate her book, but all the emotional growth goes the other way. He helps her grow emotionally as a person. And I love that. But I think this is not a, like, this is not necessarily a contradiction that she, you know, in one situation says, oh, you know, don't, don't take care of him. But in the other situation, she wants to be taken care of. I think she, Kumun Young has just this, incredible ability to see exactly what each person needs and with Kangte she sees that he's like not living his own life that he neglects his own needs while taking care of his brother so she tells him like the hard truth about his life and that he needs to take it into his own hands and move on from his guilt but for herself I think she recognizes that both brothers treat her in a way that no one else does and kind of she's she's a child in this drama like she's so immature like all her reactions the way he she asks for attention and things like that are so childish aren't they um so her whole life is just her acting up but no one ever like telling her no and setting her boundaries like I mean she's stealing a knife she's slapping that person in the bookstore like you know while there's so many cameras like pointed at her and she does all these things and just expects people to kind of like clean up the mess after her and no one who she respects really tells her no you shouldn't do that you know grow up this is not the right way to deal with this and both brothers and especially Sangti do that for her so um Yeah, I think she's looking for those boundaries and for someone to teach her right and wrong. And that's what he does for her. And I think as he sees this person with all these rules and all this insight and things like that, and she really needs that stability and this routine in her life. And he's giving that to her. And I just, yeah, I just, I just love their relationship so much. Like they're just like real siblings and they're both like kids in some ways. And they just, she doesn't treat him with this carefulness that for instance the landlady does she just you know she shouts at everyone when she wants to (laughs) and she shouts at him you know and she like completely disregards that he might get overwhelmed um that it might cause sensory overwhelm if she gets loud she just does it anyway um and some people might say like oh yeah but you know should she then just not do it but 
that just means, you know, to a certain extent, she treats him like a real person, like an equal in a way. And I mean, they they just they have all these fights and they shout at each other and they, you know, like fight over this little puppet and they have pillow fights. And I mean, one of the last scenes of the drama is them in that book reading arguing about who who's going to read this one passage from the book and it's just so lovely to see that you know she's not there trying to like calm him down and kind of like say no it's okay then then you do it you know she's just like no I want to do this you know and I'm not treating you any different because you're disabled I'm just you know you're basically my you know my found family my brother and we're gonna fight about over this like siblings like you know two equal people and I love that about the drama I don't I don't know if if this makes sense to people who are listening to this but this is such a huge thing I think with people with disabilities that you know in certain situations you don't want to I mean yes we we need allowances in daily life for certain things but we don't want to come constantly be treated like a I don't know in Germany you say like a raw egg you know like something that will break when you like handle it uh normally in a way I don't know yes yes no you totally it's it's basically ableist isn't it and it's uh and I think that's what this drama has done so well it's kind of taken away some of that some of that uh ableist kind of commentary of of how we should just manage disabled people for them Mm. Absolutely. And for me as well, if we're going to talk about relationships and we're talking about the brothers, um, what struck me was that there was so much genuine love and respect and tenderness in their moments with each other. And you can see this throughout the drama with all the minuscule ways they make each other smile in their daily lives. And that was one thing that I really liked. And it really resonated with me um, that, you know, like, as well, like helping to care for an autistic person. Yes, it can be challenging, um, but there's just often so much joy and happiness too. And, you know, I mean, like personally, the amount of laughter in our house, like every day, it's just like, it's like the best part of my life, honestly, the best part of my days. Like, yeah. So um, if we're talking about the brothers and their relationship, um, this is going to be a spoiler alert. So um, if you haven't watched the drama all the way through yet, then um, perhaps like mute or go ahead um so spoiler alert anyway so with the brothers um there's some unhealthy aspects to the relationship um which neither of them are getting their needs met in significant and linked ways and so Sangte wants more autonomy and to be able to create a life for himself where he can make more of his own decisions and to and be what in his mind is his best self right so I mean pursuing his art professionally having more agency being the big brother that Gangte and Komen Young can look up to. And meanwhile, Kangte is basically devoted so much of himself and his entire life to his brother that there's nothing of himself left. And so we see this through the drama when you know Kangte keeps telling his brother at various times, you know, you would always have me, you're my everything, I'm yours, don't leave me, Sangte. And of course, Sangte reaffirms it when you know he's standing off against Komunyong and arguing that Gangte is exclusively his and so it's detrimental to both of them I mean it's an unhealthy dynamic right and so part of the character arcs is when they both eventually allow each other to grow and so yeah sometimes um, this is the tricky part in life right is that letting go enough so that those that we love around us have the room and space for them to find that fulfillment 
and yeah, that's, you know, I mean, that's my life right now. I'm parenting teens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. There's so much. I mean, this, this is part of the story, right? That they have to find their balance um, in their relationship. And I think we all kind of need to do that in some some ways. But um, there's like just in there's also so much good in their relationship. Like I've said before with the how they deal with uh, meltdowns. I don't know how they are with each other, how they're living their life together, like what we mentioned before, with all the labels everywhere. And Sangte does have autonomy in his life in terms of going places, like, you know, he's taking the bus and going somewhere by himself. And, you know, they've just figured out a way to do that by, you know, having him memorize the route before. And, all that Kangte does as kind of like support is to like kind of like check, okay, have you memorized it? Are you okay? But then he lets him go off by himself. And I really love that about their relationship, how they kind of like figured out a way to kind of, yeah, deal with all the extra needs that he uh, that he has in a good way without being too much on top of him in some ways you know he's yeah. not taking him everywhere he's not shadowing him everywhere he's you know he's got his own part-time jobs you know where he goes by himself and yeah there's so many scenes you know he negotiates all those contracts and all these job opportunities for himself like the drawing of the painting in the hospital he ne- he does the negotiation um it's not you know Gang Te going and looking for this opportunity and giving it to him or something like that it's like Sangte who drives this and is just there to kind of like support him and to give him like this safety net of yeah I don't know so I thought that was really really great about their relationship apart from the fact that they needed to figure out how to moderate and how to balance how much of their life is kind of like entangled with the other person and how codependent they were with each other. So the, another interesting thing I think the afternoon is uh, pointed out in, in their podcast that the trauma in this K-drama is actually not related to his autism, um, which I really liked. Um, and I thought that it was uh important actually for separating out and saying this is the autism isn't the cause of his trauma um and I think beyond the story it's actually a feature that can be quite common with autism that there are co-occurring things that are not directly caused by autism um but often can't be separated from it or that people think it's mixed up together with it uh, because it's a feature of autism so what do you guys thought think about um kind of the handling of the trauma and the autism in the drama Okay, I'll try not to get too carried away with this. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, I've got a, like a personal vested interest in it. Um, the overlap between autism and trauma is really relevant because it gets just discussed a lot um, by autistic people online. And it's usually the trauma that arises from trying to navigate life as an autistic person. So, um, you know, our families, school, workplaces, relationships, daily interactions, like all of these can can be traumatic. But in Sangte's case, there's also the trauma of witnessing his mother's death. And so then we have his panic attacks and nightmares and flashbacks are arising for a different reason um, and a different reason than, than being autistic. And I'm pleased that the series really seemed to want to make that distinction that autism isn't a mental illness and what Sante was experiencing with his trauma was a separate issue. 
Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Specifically, his reaction of not revealing the murderer's identity and kind of like shutting off that memory of the murder and kind of like, you know, um, distancing himself and kind of like not remembering. Um, it wasn't done. This wasn't kind of done because he was autistic, which could have easily been the plot line, right? You have, you know, you have so many stories where someone being autistic or someone being disabled in some way is the reason why a certain thing happens. But in this case, I feel like these two parts weren't because he was autistic. That's lots of neurotypical children mm. would have done the same in yeah. face of this trauma to kind of like just forgotten about the whole incident and just blocked it out and not talked about it because they were asked to do that, right? Um, he was threatened by the murderer. Don't tell anyone about this or I'll hurt you and your loved ones. So I just really like that him being autistic wasn't just a tool to make a plot point of the murderer not being revealed, which, you know, you see done so many times. But obviously what this traumatic experience then did with him, that was obviously shaped by him being autistic because, yeah, that's who he is. Yeah. And so, yeah, to, to go with that, um, I was just going to add that um, it's not to say that his trauma wouldn't have been exacerbated by his being autistic. And so um, I was doing a, a Google Scholar search. I mean, who doesn't spend their weekends on Google Scholar? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, gosh. I, I basically live there. just like read too many papers for my own good. And um, so I found multiple papers on the increased risk for PTSD and autistic people and more severe symptoms compared to the neurotypical population. And so one study that I looked at had a rate of PTSD in the autistic versus neurotypical groups to be 32% to 4%. And um, wow. there was also another one from 2021 that stated that the highest rate that they had encountered in the literature review so far was 45% for current probable PTSD and 61% for lifetime probable PTSD in trauma exposed autistic individuals. And so, yeah, it was kind of sobering reading. And part of the reason might be our neurology and our tendency of many autistic people to have an intense episodic and often photographic memory complete with all of the emotions as raw as when the original event occurred. And that was kind of one um, aspect that the researchers posited, um, noting the type of detailed sensory visual spatial processing of the traumatic event can contribute to these vivid trauma memories and the subsequent PTSD symptoms. And so this might be similar to what we saw with Songtae. And so why is it relevant, right? Um, the researchers noted that being autistic tended to result in more severe PTSD symptoms. And likewise, PTSD and autistic people contributed to more mood symptomology and anxiety and behavioral difficulties. And so we see this in the drama with Sante striking his striking and detailed memories of the loss of his mother. And then these in turn fuel the nightmares and the flashbacks with the butterflies and his memories of falling into the river and how he was able to narrate so clearly the sequence of events and what was said word for word, even after all those years. So although the trauma and the possible PTSD is different from his autism, the two are intertwined. And I think the drama did a good job of highlighting this. And before I I'll hand over here. Um, Dr. Devin Price also mentioned in his book that people with PTSD can often display traits that look similar to what you would see in autistic people. And so, for example, sensitivity to loud noises, sensitivity to crowds, 
being reserved in unfamiliar situations, being hypervigilant um, and modulating how you present yourself for safety reasons. So basically almost a form of masking. And so that poses a problem as well. If you're an undiagnosed autistic person with PTSD and someone is writing off your symptoms. And um, yeah, like I said, this was of a personal interest in this because I have CPTSD and I'm autistic. And I've spent many, many hours in discussion with my therapist about where one ends and the other begins. <laughs> and so what the delineation point is between what of my traits are autistic and what are results of CPTSD. And so guess what? We've been unable to find the answer to that yet. And that's how complex this is. Oh, wow. Thanks for sharing that with us, Jay. That is, uh, oh, yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's really important um, just because I mean, there's been so many times when I'm on autistic Twitter and we discuss about how prevalent trauma is with autistic people. And, you know, there's often an observation that just, you know, are there any autistic people that don't have trauma that don't have some aspect of this? And so when you see the, the rates that are showing up in the, in the literature and in the papers and stuff, you just realize that, yeah, this is huge and it needs talking about and how many people, you know, know about this. And it's like, even the, the, the papers I consulted, I mean, all of the researchers were like, more research needs to be done. This needs to be looked at. We need to really, you know, look at the, the depth and, and how much PTSD is in the autistic community. Um, and it's just no one's studying it. And nobody's evaluating it. So it's, it's a real issue and it really needs the research. But I mean, the, I think the awareness is the first step. And so, I mean, yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to mention it. And I thought it tied in with the drama. So there you go. Oh, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Thank you. But on the no, other it's... hand, I think it's also important that they, to a certain extent, separate it in this drama, or we can, to a certain extent, separate it. Because I think we've had this in the last uh, uh, pod about the whole high, high, high and low functioning discussion, mm -hmm. that this was originally actually tied to an intellectual disability, and that those are co-occurring things rather than a feature of autism itself. And it's so, so important to separate those things and raise awareness that they are separate things mm. because it's, it, this is what, what, what's the problem with autism being underdiagnosed and so often undiagnosed because even professionals just assume that unless you've got an intellectual disability, you can't actually be autistic. And there's so many things like that that are just not true. And that's why it's so important to highlight this, I think. Yeah, but I totally agree what you said about the whole um, detailed sensory um, processing and memories and things like that. And I think another aspect of this is the kind of autistic experience of getting stuck on things and not being able to kind of like move on. I don't know if there's like a scientific term for this, but, you know, like this... I know that from my own. So yeah, I know from my own experience that sometimes I have memories and feelings and experiences that were kind of upsetting. And I sometimes like go over them in my head for like days at, on end. And I have conversations with those people in my head and just like go over it and go over it and go over it without being able to move on. It's really frustrating. And I think this is like why for Sangte it could be that this this whole traumatic event is just like still 
so potent and so kind of like traumatic for him even so many years afterwards that they have to move every single year that because you know like he's kind of like stuck on it and he still has this vivid memory in his mind and it doesn't fade over time it doesn't get less um but maybe this is just like a general um ptsd uh, thingy i don't know i'm i'm not I, i'm not an expert on that uh, but I, I think it yeah definitely so interesting to talk about these points um so one thing that i wanted to bring up was was that the drummer also examines the very emotional and difficult topic of caregiving responsibilities in the family obviously notably with gang Tae becoming a primary caretaker of sang Tae from a young age after their mother's death um and we're told about gang Tae's multiple part-time jobs through the years but he couldn't continue his education and we see that what his daily life it like is like sorry and we see what his daily life is like ensuring his brother is well cared for and there's this expectation put upon him by his mother that he has taken upon himself and internalized that Sangte's well-being and happiness will always come first and his own needs must be sacrificed for this um so I wanted to talk a little bit about how you guys might relate to this and how this can be a problem in, in families with kids with mixed needs and, and capabilities um Personally, this is what made this drama like such a tough watch for me. I cried, I cried a lot in this drama, um, and it's and it's part of the reason why I finished the drama and thought this is absolutely a work of genius. But it's one that I probably won't revisit from start to finish again because it's just a little bit like too close to the bone for me. Um, so uh, we've we've heard people speak before, I think, about. Uh, if you're a parent of a disabled child um that one of your most absolute worst nightmares is what's going to happen if you're not there and obviously for their mum this must have been i mean just horrific because here she is with two orphan young boys um and it, it literally is her worst nightmare to leave them alone um and we see this as a flashback scene where gangte suddenly realizes there's a risk right the authorities are going to split him up um and he just suddenly switches at that really young age I think he suddenly realizes he has to take on the role of adult he needs to take control of the situation because Santa doesn't know what could happen to him he doesn't know the risk doesn't know what's going to go uh, happen so that's when they decide to go on a run together um just in order to stay together and the drama doesn't really dwell on this too much but we can only imagine how hard it could have been for the brothers over the years uh, and they're so young um to be effectively deliberately trying to live outside the system because the system is potentially going to split them up um and i think it's also why we feel so much sympathy at the heart of the trauma of some of this this drama that the hesitation that he felt kind of rescuing yeah you know, so so you know gang tae gang hesitation hesitation over not rescuing um, his brother in that frozen lake and then oh god Kim Soo-hun like does amazing crying like he does amazing, amazing crying right <laughs> and I think for me like I'm not not like I go around seeking like the best male lead crying but I think he knocks it out the park with this scene you know when he's in that stairwell and he yes. suddenly collapses because he realizes that Sang-tae remembers everything about that scene and he remembers how the hesitation he felt not rescuing his brother like that 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 split second when he thought you know actually maybe maybe I could have a life without my brother and he just mm. absolutely it's obviously something he's held inside him for so long um 
and not not allowed himself to kind of even open that door and suddenly oh it's just an amazing scene yeah it really is it really is and I think there's two sides to the story right and we can empathize with both sides we've got the side of the mother needing or wanting to make sure that you know her disabled child is cared for and you know needing you know needing that security in her life that if something happens to her there is someone to kind of like step up and we see at the beginning that she didn't have that support network and then spoiler alert in the end that's what's so beautiful at the end for for me is they've got this huge network suddenly of people, you know, who are ready to step in. We've got the landlady who's like, Gang Tae, no, it's okay. Do your thing. I'm going to take Sang Tae home. I'm going to make sure he eats. You know, you take care of yourself. And there's just so many scenes where we see that, where there's other people there who are now in the wider kind of like circle of their family who are ready to kind of like, yeah, just, just, be that support for Sangte when he needs it and it's not on this one person anymore and that's so beautiful but then like you said on the other side obviously for Kangte as a as a person it's horrible like I mean he's even the younger brother he was so young and all these scenes where we you know hear his mother say oh you know I only had you so there was someone to take care of Sangte um when I'm not there anymore it's just so heartbreaking and I think the drama does really you know it, I mean if you just say that without w- having watched the drama you're like we he ran away when his brother fell into the river and he didn't want to rescue him you know like it blows your mind how could anyone do that mm. but the drama builds up this scene so well that we were totally with him in that scene and we were like, yeah, I totally understand his hesitation. I totally understand this because we've seen so many scenes of, and then we we know, spoiler alert later on, that his memory was compromised, but we see so many like snippets of his memory where it seems like his mother only cares for his brother and he's always left out. And she only does things for Sangte and Kangte is just kind of there but nothing is done for him as a person with his, in his own right. Um, yeah, I think the drama like does that so well to kind of empathize with us and his grief about just feeling like he's only, he's not his own person. Like it's, you know, it's repeated throughout the drama, right? He's not his own person. He's just there for Sangte. Um, and I guess in the, in the end, it all boils down to sort of sibling rivalry, but it's just like exaggerated through the added thing of um, Sangte having all these additional needs. But um, obviously, a parents' capacity and time in the day are always limited, and I think this is this huge struggle, right? If you've uh, if you have families with kids with mixed abilities, that you have to manage your time and your energy and you have to make sure that you see to everyone's needs. But in the end, if there is for one child needs that have to be taken care of and then your capacity and your time for the day is already used up, then it, 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 I just imagine it happens so often that then the needs of the other child just, you know, like get disregarded in a way just because there's only so much time and yeah capacity you have in a day and it's just so 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 difficult i completely agree with what you said and how you expressed it so well and i mean it's 
that's my personal experience as well with it. And I'm um, like completely agree with what you, what you just said. Okay. So there are a few scenes in the drama where Sang Tae lashes out at his brother and there are, and these are difficult to watch and maybe even get interpreted differently by the audience, depending on their knowledge and experience of autism. And perhaps these actions even unfortunately play into the stereotype of autistic people as violent or aggressive. Um, so what was your take on the violence in these, um, in these uh, scenes? Yeah, so I noticed this on my rewatch because obviously I was watching with this lens of Sangte being an example for an autistic person. And they're just, it seemed like there were just so many scenes with physical violence between the brothers where Kangte sometimes even almost invites Sangte to hit him and say, like, look, I've made a mistake. I shouldn't have done this, hit me. And he barely fights back or defends himself. And I just thought it would be really important to talk about because if we do take Sangte as an autistic character, then we need to talk about the difference between this just being kind of like a plot device and this violent behavior being seen as something autistic people do in general. And I think that's a very important distinction. Absolutely. Um, I thought I'd bring in a little context for the discussion. So I just wanted to read uh, a quote from Naoki Higashira. And it's not directly related to physical violence against another person, but it's rather violence against himself. And so this was what he wrote in one of his books. And here's the quote. When I erupt into anger, I start hitting my head. I want to take control of the situation, but my brain won't let me. If people try to tell me off while I'm hitting myself or to forcibly stop me from doing it or yell, what are you doing at me? I become utterly dejected. By now, it's no longer about punishing my brain. It's about punishing myself for having lost the plot so woefully. And so my take on the violent scene between the brothers, like, for example, in episode six, kind of like where they're having the fight at the Cursed Castle, um, where the contract has just been ripped up um, by Gante and they get into this this big altercation and they go flying through the front door and into the front yard. Um, uh, I would, that just for me was like, um, we highlighted how difficult emotional regulation can be. And so, I mean, Naoki mentions it in his book as well, that regulating and trying to master your emotions is overwhelmingly taxing as he, as he said. And I imagine for neurotypical people watching the scene, they're likely really troubled about this and maybe it even reinforces some kind of previously held stereotype that they had about autistic people as unpredictable um, what I see when I watch the scene was just an autistic person who is suddenly confronted with um, a loss of agency, you know, when his contract is being ripped up. And um, that was kind of like his whole declaration for when he says, you know, Moong Sang Tae belongs to Moong Sang Tae. And it's just this overwhelming sense of just emotion that the symbol that he had of achieving a life goal of his is just um, shredded before his eyes. And so, I mean, like, here's the thing is like, okay, so behavior is a form of communication, right? And it was telling that the exchange happened between the brothers and that often autistic people only feel safe enough to share these strong emotions with people that they're closest to. But um, yeah, emotional regulation can be really difficult for so many of us. And it's something we're always working on. And I completely agree with Naoki's observation as well about the shame and dejection that comes from afterwards from losing control and um Sangte apologizes to Gangte when he sees him again and we know uh, you know probably that 
you know, it's like not the first time that this has happened or it's likely to be the last time. Yeah. I thank you so much for putting that quote in. Um, I really think it's very, very illuminating. Um, and also not that not only that it's about emotional regulation being difficult, but often I think in those scenarios, neurotypical people are often going, what's wrong with you? Why are you being like this? You know, they're basically trying to ask where are all these emotions coming from? Like, what is your motivation? What is it that you're upset about? But in that moment, it's like the last thing that you can do is articulate what emotions mm-hmm. you're feeling or what it is. you're like. Your, it's like your whole being is trying to regulate yourself and make yourself safe and make you not act out like I don't have the brain capacity to to, to then talk about my emotions and tell you what's going on and like you know speak about the triggers and things but often I think the the that kind of when neurotypical meets neurodiverse that's where they are because the the neurotypical person is often trying to solve the problem and they need to solve the problem by understanding what's going on with your head and trying to take control of the situation rather than you know, just understanding actually sometimes it's just not possible in that moment to articulate how you feel. Yeah, and I think this is really, really important to point out this whole like when things like that happen, it's often due to some sort of sensory overload or some sort of overwhelm and that you have to kind of like either remove triggers or do kind of like this physical urge to kind of release some of this like energy that one feels in like a safe way um but i think it's really really important to point out that between the brothers i don't think it was done in a healthy way and i think there was an aspect of learned behavior to how they dealt with these situations like i mean we all know that violence as like a form of communication in part can be learned behavior like i mean you know like people using violence as this kind of behavior when they feel frustrated or when they don't know how else to solve a situation. I mean, this is physical abuse, right? To a certain extent, and it's not limited to autistic people. There's so many neurotypical people that do this and it's not okay. But um, brothers, I feel like Kante has kind of encouraged this behavior to be directed against him because this whole situation, obviously, spoiler alert, is kind of like he's punishing himself because of his guilt about having run away and wanting his brother dead in this uh, lake drowning situation. So I feel like in part, this violence is a learned behavior that Sangte is using the hitting and things like that against uh, Kangte. And yeah, I think it's just really important to point that out that, you know, like we obviously can learn to Mm kind of you know channel this energy when we do want to kind of like physically do something because we're frustrated because we're overwhelmed we can channel that in in more healthy ways and um although obviously that is very very dependent on who we are as an autistic person so if there's like co-occurring things like intellectual disabilities that learning might be harder than when we're someone without an intellectual disability. So yeah, um, I think that's just like in this specific case, um, I thought this was very important. Mm. I mean, so you're saying that you think maybe that he's kind of using the physical violence as a way to alleviate some of the guilt that he's feeling, like kind of like hit me, punish me because- 
Yeah. 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 Because he says he says in some some situations he even asks to be hit. He's like, come on, hit me, you know, like, and he doesn't defend himself. He just like, especially in this episode in, in what was it? Episode six in front mm. of that castle house, you know, he just lies on the floor and he, I mean, he kind of like raises his arms to protect his face, but he just lets him hit him, you know? And he, I mean, obviously he shouldn't like retaliate or something like that, but he's also not discouraging it in any way. He even encourages him to like continue with it. Yeah, and I think just throughout their relationship, he's done that probably multiple times, and it's a learned behavior from Sung Tae that in these situations, it's sort of okay to do that and to punish his brother for his misbehavior by hitting him. Okay. So, um... <laughs> I just wanted to add, just yeah, before we go, just to clarify, um, kind of what I was saying about you know the whole like behaviors communication and stuff too, as well. Is that you know I I'm not saying that violence should be condoned or that autism can be used as an excuse for problematic behavior because it's not an excuse. And if anything, it's a background explanation. Um, but hopefully people learn emotional regulation and communication strategies and defaulting to harmful actions to get your point across wouldn't be necessary any longer. And so, I mean, this is the thing, autism really impacts how we interact with the world and our emotional regulation and our decision-making and our reactions. And then if you add triggers and traumas and the whole thing is really so complex. And so getting better and making better choices is a learned skill. And so I just wanted to be sure that while we're discussing this as well, that we're cognizant that there's autistic people of all ages along very different points on this developmental journey. And we just want to be careful when we talk about it. Bad. So uh, and we brought this up at the beginning, but was there anything about the drama that you didn't like in its uh, portrayal of autism um, or that seemed off for you guys? Mm, yeah. So in the rewatch, something that was said quite early on kind of struck me as like, ah. Uh, so basically there's this scene, I don't even know the context anymore, but it just stuck in my head so much what he said in this scene. Um, and it's when Sangte says to his brother, you're just, or no, he says to an autistic person, a brother is still only like a close stranger or something like that. And I just like, ah, I just really disliked the sentence because it's so generalizing. And I just think it just really plays into the stereotype that autistic people don't have feelings and I just really dislike that. Mm. Like that, yeah, that bothered me too. Um, just that sentence. And that just, you know, I was, I was kind of, when I remember I watched it and I was like, what? Huh? Because especially like right afterwards, you know, I was wondering like, you know, was he repeating something he just heard or, or, or where did he pick this up? Because then in the next scene, he's explaining that he's saving up for the camping car and he's putting all this money towards a camping car so that the landlords won't be angry at them anymore and they, for having to move and for always having to be picking up and moving every year. And so, and also that, you know, Gangte won't be inconvenienced by packing. And so he's demonstrating that he loves and cares for him and that he's concerned about his brother and concerned about his feelings. And this was just like right after he said, you know, that their, you know, a brother was just a close stranger. And I was kind of like, huh, that what? <laughs> yeah, I just, I just really didn't understand it, why they said it there. Because like you say, the drama taught us otherwise, like so many scenes where we saw that, you know, Sang Tae loves his brother. 
But I did wonder if this is maybe more of a comment on how sometimes in some ways neurotypical people will never understand autistic people. But, you know, I don't know that for me personally, it's just about finding the right people like especially like connecting with you Jay for instance or with other autistic people or other ND people there's just so many instances where things that I find are really really weird and where I think nobody will ever understand this and then I tell you some of these things and you're like yeah that's totally something that I would do and I'm just like it just makes me so happy to have this understanding and that just like completely contradicts in a way what he said here or you know that or at least we can't generalize this statement to all people in your life will always feel like close strangers because it's just about finding the right people and maybe just neurotypical or maybe autistic people you know you just need to find other autistic people other nd people to have this sort of understanding and Mm -hmm. have these relationships that are just more than just being close strangers for me i don't have any complaints with the autistic aspect um uh but i didn't find it realistic how quickly the characters seem to resolve their trauma and move on like i understand it's fiction and we only have 16 episodes and we all want like a happily ever after um, but just as they did like a really good job of depicting, um, you know, an autistic character and about the other characters tro- coping with their own traumas, um, the resolution of the traumas just seemed to happen quite quickly. And, you know, yeah, so that didn't sit well with me, but I mean, you know, I wish it was like this in real life, <laughs> especially when I mentioned <laughs> about, you know, PTSD yeah. and autistic people earlier. I mean, it just, yeah, it just, it wasn't realistic, but I mean, I kind of understand why they had to do it. So. Yeah, like in reality, I think all three of them need to go see therapists, right? And um, absolutely, absolutely, all three of them. And as I mentioned it at the top of the podcast, I think for me, it's the um, portrayal of how an autistic character needs to look. So, I mean, I think the number one bugbear, I think, for a lot of autistic people, um, and certainly for me as well, when um, we are telling people about the diagnosis in our families, is that you know, from the experiences, but you don't look autistic or you don't look mm. like your ADHD and it's kind of I think this drama reinforces it that um but with the way they styled um uh Ante, that he just looked like he was sorry styled Sante that he looked um like he was autistic and he was you know carried himself in a certain way had his hair in a certain way and it would just be lovely and I think they did that with um with extraordinary Tony Wu as well, that she looked different as well. And obviously they're actually paid, played by, you know, very good looking neurotypical actors. So I would love an autistic drama next time to have an autistic character that looks exactly like everybody else. So that you can't mm-hmm. tell from the poster, or you can't tell from the way they're holding themselves or whatever, that they're autistic, just like in real life. Um, so that would be my warm thought there. Mm-hmm. Like, just be as good looking as no joke and suspicious part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I also wanted to mention that for a future part, in case those of you who wanted to watch things ahead of, of time of when we drop things, we have promised Jay, Francisco and I, that is, have promised Jay that we're going to watch one of the dramas that she is obsessed over. And it's going to be our first sea drama, and it's The Untamed, which is a CNCR. So we have promised her we are going to watch it. She's so excited. Uh, so we will cover it for a future a future pod. And it's and it's fifty episodes, and yeah. So I mean, it's it's a bit of a time commitment, but I mean, it is. 
one of my favorites. It's, you know, I watched it, what, like 2020 and then fell into the fandom and I haven't surfaced yet. And I basically live there. I'm like, just like <laughs> living in the fandom, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's my life. So, I mean, and I'm so looking forward to this and like, it's, it's, if you want to talk about like rewatches and stuff too, it's really a treat for me to like guide my friends and everyone who hasn't seen it yet through it because I mean it is a bit tricky and complex in places and stuff too but just to like when I'm re-watching it with people who haven't seen it before it's like I'm watching it again for the first time and it's uh-huh. like such a treat and I love it uh-huh. I love it so much <laughs> great so that's gonna so we're gonna leave it there today um obviously we still have a lot more topics to cover on this topic but if you've got any questions or things that you want to ask then always feel free to email us at at afternoonasks at gmail.com um or any uh, of our social media we really hope you enjoyed our podcast today and until next time thank you for listening we hope you've enjoyed our pod follow us on our instagram at afternoona asks or our website www.afternoonaasks.com to get more k-drama content from a writer's lens follow our sister pod afternoona delight For any BTS fans out there, our other sister pod, Afternoona Army, is here for all your needs. If you want to hang with us and other K-drama fans, do consider joining us on Afternoona Delight Patreon. There are different levels for you to access. Go to www.afternoonadelightpodcast.com to sign up. Finally, if you have any questions for us, please feel free to contact us via our socials or our email, afternoonasks at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, 下次再见!